Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Made Radio. I hope you're doing well. Time to dive into the hive mind of YouTube comments and provide some feedback for those who have taken the time to comment on the videos. So, this is from a video or podcast called The Atheist's Burden of Proof, wherein Daniel says, As much as I love Steph, I think the caller owned him. Steph kept insisting things that were provably false. For instance, he made the assertion that two and two can never make five, or a square circle can't exist. But physicists tell us that the farther out in the universe you go, the laws of physics break down. Seeming impossibilities and contradictions become facts. Well, um, that's not proving anything. Saying that reason breaks down billions of light years away at the very edge of the universe doesn't have much to do with the debate occurring on planet Earth. That's very, very, it's like saying, I don't need an umbrella when it's raining because somewhere it's sunny. Well, we deal with local conditions and philosophy deals with local conditions on the planet Earth. People try to find a place to put irrationality and validate it, to make irrationality empirical. Now, they used to do this in the realm of deities. Now, they tend to do it in the realm of quantum physics and the edge of the universe where up is down, black is white, and so on. But this has no bearing on the question of the validity of detecting a deity in the here and now on this planet in this universe. Uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, saying that there could be some realm in physics where rules may be different uh, does not invalidate any of the rules that are local. Um, just to sort of give an example, I've never heard anyone say, well, you see, the KKK might have been a really great organization because right at the edge of the universe, perhaps racism and lynching are really great, morally good. So we can't say anything. We can't put anyone in jail. We can't fail anyone uh, who's uh, trying to uh, complete a test uh, because in another universe or at the edge of this universe, the exact opposite could be true. Uh, that doesn't... Uh, try, <laughs> try saying that to your visa a bill company, right? Ah, oh, you see, but at the edge of the universe, where the laws of physics are supposed to perhaps break down, maybe I did pay this bill, so we're going to call it even, right? That's just not how things work. And that's sort of first thing. Secondly, what's happening at the edge of the universe in theoretical physics has no bearing on the genesis of religiosity, which occurred during very primitive, primitive times in the development of human thought consciousness and a pretty anti-scientific attitude. So sun-baked Bedouin 5,000 years ago didn't know a whole hell of a lot about what was going on at the edge of the universe. They thought the universe was basically like a pie shell with holes where light came through. So I don't think we really want to look at the genesis of religiosity and say, well, somehow gods may exist because at the edge of the universe, opposite, maybe up and down, maybe black and white, and, you know, could be chaos and confusion and dogs living with cats and all that kind of stuff. So trying to find a realm wherein logic is invalidated and therefore saying anything could be true is not rational. But of course, once this, of course, we're never going to get out to the edge of the universe anyway. It's billions of light years away. Nothing can travel faster than light, as far as I understand it, except Captain Kirk's nutsack. And therefore, um, I don't think we're really going to have to worry about logical disproofs coming from the edge of the universe. So he goes on to say, secondly, Steph is trying to impose man-made logic on God. God, God, I'm not even a theist and I'm no peddler of religion, but I'm a believer in rational thought. Mm. I think if you say reason invalidated by the edge of the universe, I'm not sure you're actually much of a believer in rational thought. 
That being the case, even I concede that man-made logic is just that, man-made. It's not objectively real, as much as we want it to be. Steph made the comment, consciousness without matter cannot exist, and the kid said, prove it. Of course, Steph can't, uh, and his arrogance prevents him from seeing he just got owned. Well, um, consciousness without matter is for the other person to prove, because the standard is that we never see consciousness without matter nearby, right? You never see consciousness without a brain in the vicinity. And yes, you can look at videos and so on, but you understand what I'm saying. And so if if the norm is, if everywhere and, and forever, we have only ever seen consciousness where there is matter, where there is a brain, the mind is an effect of the brain, just as gravity is an effect of matter. And so if the norm is we always see consciousness where there is matter, if somebody says consciousness can exist without matter, they're the one making the claim outside of reality, outside of what is proven and logical and empirical and so on. Like if I say this rock, when I let go of it, it's just like all the other rocks, but it will fall upwards. Well, that's kind of an extraordinary claim, <laughs> and therefore extraordinary extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So this needs to be double, triple checked, quadruple checked in every conceivable way with every conceivable instrument because I'm making a claim that goes in direct opposition to the norm that the Earth, uh, the planet Earth, as having much larger gravity, will pull the rock down just as the rock will pull the ground up, but to a much smaller degree. So if I'm saying, look, if I have this rock and I let go of it, it falls down, I think we're all going to accept that that's the case because that's the norm and that's what's been observed and that's what conforms with uh, science and empiricism and rationality. If I say this rock's like the other rocks, but it's going to fall up, well, then that's I'm making a claim outside the norm and therefore the burden of proof lies on me. So when I say consciousness has never been observed and cannot theoretically or conceivably exist without the presence of matter, it's kind of axiomatic, because to detect consciousness, we are going to need to detect its effects on matter, right? You, you, you cannot claim that something exists unless you can empirically observe something materially, or at least the effects of matter. Gravity exists in the presence of matter. And so consciousness cannot exist without matter. Where there is no matter, we will never be able to detect any consciousness. But the moment that consciousness makes itself known to us, it's through creating tablets or speaking to us or giant thumbs <laughs> writing in the sky or something like that. It's going to have an effect on matter. So that's important as well. The burden on proof, uh, the burden of proof lies upon the person making the extraordinary claims. So, uh, of course, Steph can't, okay. Steph can't prove any of the things he's saying. They're mere assertions. <laughs> So when he says that the laws of physics um, uh, may break down at the edge of the universe and therefore uh, two and two can make five or a unicorn or something like that, he's actually just making an assertion. So apparently making mere assertions without proof because he hasn't proved that two and two make a unicorn at the edge of the universe. He simply made an assertion. So apparently for me to make mere assertions is really, really bad. But for him to make really, really uh, assertions is logically responsible and so on. So he says, Steph can't prove any of the things he's saying. They're mere assertions. And even those assertions he's making, like the laws of physics, as we understand them on Earth, must apply to the rest of the universe, have been debunked by actual physicists. Well, I would really like to see how physicists say 
that the laws of physics only apply on the Earth. And the moment you break orbit or you get above the atmosphere or whatever you consider the edge or the end of the Earth, oh, look, if I jump, wait, wait. No, still going back down. See, I was off the Earth for the moment, still happened to come back down. I would love to see uh, the, the, a, a, a physicist say that the moment you leave Earth or the local area, the laws of physics don't, <laughs> don't apply anymore. I mean, nobody says that. I mean, nobody with any brains or any understanding of science. So it's like quantum physics, right? Quantum physicists will say, yes, some freaky stuff is happening down at the atomic and subatomic level. However, at the realm of sense data, which is really where philosophy operates, um, it's physics is perfectly predictable and uniformity. All of quantum effects cancel out by the time you get to anything that you can remotely see and touch, even in a microscope. So <laughs> the idea that... Um, there's no, no physicist believes that the laws of physics, as we understand them on Earth, must apply to the rest of the universe. Well, they do. They do. Uh, and that's how we know we can get a spaceship uh, out past uh, the recently demoted planet of Pluto and so on, because we know that the laws of physics apply universally. If they're not universal, then they're not laws of physics. Uh, they're culture or something like that. Um, so Steph's intellectual limitations were on display for all, all to see. And um, uh, reason is not man-made, man-made. I mean, a, um, a, a computer mouse is, is man-made, a, a monitor is man-made. Uh, logic is not man-made, it's not invented uh, arbitrarily. Like I can make a painting, uh, that's nothing universal. But logic is, uh, the, as Rand called it, the art of non-contradictory identification. Uh, logic is, is making sure that your thoughts are about anything that is objective is as consistent as those things which are objective. It is an attempt to conform human thought to the objectivity and empiricism and predictability and uniformity of rational principles, of principles that are universal, physics, laws of physics, and so on. And so we have reason... Um, which is accepted and understood and propagated because it matches the consistency of sense data and matter. Uh, so it's not invented. And nobody invented that an object falls to Earth at 9.8 meters per second per second or that gases expand when heated. Uh, and nobody invented uh, or merely created out of nothing the scientific method. The scientific method was created in an attempt to get human thought about reality to match the universality and consistency of reality. And so um, it's not just made up uh, by people. It's a, a rational discipline that mirrors the uh, objectivity of reality itself. So uh, again, I'm, I'm happy to hear, I, I find the edge of physics the fascinating stuff. Uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with philosophy uh, because uh, when we're never going to get to the edge of the universe. Um, I mean, it's expanding, what, almost at the speed of light. We can't possibly catch up with it. Uh, and of course, the universe and its current state uh, remains in hot debate among physicists, even as the Big Bang does. So uh, it's not really got anything, certainly got nothing to do with ethics or virtue. What goes on at the edge of the universe has nothing to do with whether rape is moral or immoral uh, in the world or in a spaceship going around the world or anything like that. So um, the idea that we can find some place in science where we can put our irrationality and call it rational is a fantasy. Uh, the whole purpose of science is to discover universal laws if there's freaky stuff going on at the edge of the universe, should we ever get there. Uh, 
then the purpose of science will be to figure out how to defreak it, <laughs> right? I mean, things fall down, a helium balloon falls up, and the purpose of science is to explain why the helium is lighter than air and so on, right? And so the purpose of science is to defreak stuff. If stuff remains freaky, which of course it probably always will, because there's always further barriers of knowledge to be knocked down by the lines of science, uh, then the purpose of science is to defreak it. But saying somewhere, somewhere in the universe, freaky, rational, anti-empirical stuff could exist. Therefore, every crazy statement that everyone says could possibly be true is not a rational use of science and certainly not anything to do with philosophy. It's an attempt to evade the necessity of rational universals and rational thought and rational uh, logic. So I've read somewhere that um, the definition of a mammal is uh, warm-blooded, suckles its young, gives birth to live young, not through eggs. And I repeated this uh, foolishly without checking every conceivable <laughs> exception to this rule, and I was mistaken. There is apparently a very large phalanx of platypus fetishists who have uh, taken a moment from refusing to grease up their uh, young furry creature uh, lovers and have informed me a platypus lays, lays eggs and is a mammal. Uh, and um, uh, I, apparently I said mammals, do they give birth to live young or do they give birth to eggs? If it's eggs, not a mammal. Uh, somebody replied, uh, Steph is clearly being paid off by the anti-platypus lobby. That's true. Uh, that is true. Uh, it is. Um, I think the Koch brothers are branching out from conservatism to uh, a hatred of the platypus. Um, eggs from mammal? That would be platypus. Echidna. Your ignorance of the natural world is abysmal. As of right. Uh, Pliny the Elder often wrote of natural rights. So my ignorance of the natural world is abysmal. Uh, that may be a little strong, given that there's some very odd exception that was not talked about by uh, the... Um, biologist that I read about, he forgot about the platypus. The platypus would like a word with you. For everyone out there, yes, a platypus is a mammal. It's an egg-laying mammal. So for all of those uh, platypus lovers, I do apologize for uh, standing between you and the object of your affection. Uh, and uh, I absolutely correct and will refrain from making that definition in the future. I do actually appreciate the correction. <laughs> I'm not trying to be too snarky, but thanks, everyone. My statement, I've never met a white racist man, uh, and uh, this money said, and Setefen, knowed as to say, I agree with you. I stopped watching this pathetic video at that point. Very sad. Setefen Molyneux. Uh, and somebody replied, that's crazy. He is playing lying there. Let's be honest about things. Well, I mean, I'm sorry if my honesty is troubling or upsetting to people, but I've traveled a lot around this world and I've never actually met a racist white man. I've met very few racists as a whole. I do see them online. I was talking about people I've met in person, but um, I just haven't. I haven't had anyone I've ever met who has uh, sat down with me and said, well, you know, this particular group is really inferior and this particular group is really inferior and we are the best and in every conceivable way and... I just never met anyone like that. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. Of course it does. I'm just saying I've never been exposed to racism, uh, certainly from a, a white man. And um, the fact that people can't believe I haven't met a racist white man is kind of racist because it's assuming that there just must be so many racist white men that I can't possibly have gone, gotten to the age of 48 
without having met a lot of them, uh, it's pretty racist, right? It, it, like if somebody said, well, I've never met a black guy who steals, I'd be like, oh, come on. What a liar you are. Of course you've met a black guy who's confessed to theft. Of course you have, because that's what black guys do. So naturally, you must have... Right? I mean, that would be pretty, pretty racist, right? But it's hard to see racism against whites because propaganda. So, uh, yeah, sorry, stand by. Never met a racist white man. Um, I'm really trying to think of racists I may have met in my life uh, from other genders and other... No, I can't really, I can't really think of any. And um, so I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I was simply saying I've not met it. I, and you'd think for something that's supposed to be so systemic, like racism, particularly white male racism, you'd think I'd have caught a hint of it uh, somewhere or other. Um, but no. So I was simply reporting my empirical experience, which I stand by. I wasn't lying. And the fact that people can't believe that I haven't met a racist white man, I actually think I've now met some racists, <laughs> particularly against white men. This was from a video called The Truth About Sex. Uh, Rody wrote, The Heritage Foundation in Canada is a racist, right-wing, Christian think tank. I would not trust the information in this video without double-checking it. Um, okay, I mean, anybody who cries racism without proof is a racist because you're using a generalization uh, about someone uh, or about this particular group and calling them racist. If you don't provide evidence, then you are, in fact, a racist. And I'm sorry to say that, but it seems pretty indisputable. Uh, so this is data that we produced. We use data from a variety of sources. One of the sources was from the Heritage Foundation. And of course, double-check the data. Absolutely double-check the data that we use. Um, that's very important. We try to get the best data we can. But the problem, of course, with a lot of this stuff is up until the 90s, you could find very interesting studies on gender and on race. And then in the 90s, the tight, neck-breaking noose of political correctness fell around academia, and most of this stuff has simply vanished from the intellectual landscape. You simply can't find it. I wish that more people were studying. Like people in this one, we, we talked a lot about the negative and dangerous effects of things like promiscuity on women, and people are like, well, what about men? It's like, we'd love to report on men. We really, really would. But... um in the softer sciences, not really science, but uh, in, the, in the sort of artsy disciplines and so on, there just doesn't seem to be that much interest in studying men. And so we get the data where we can get the data from. And if there's um, bigotry in the data, please let us know and we will rescind and we will apologize. But just saying it's racist, right-wing Christian, and therefore discount the information. I mean, that's just a smear. Come on, people, we, we got to be better than that. When it comes to making intellectual arguments, you've got to be better than a smear. Oh, he's just a nasty, smelly soul from hell and Hades itself. Okay, so you don't like the conclusions, you don't like the information, and you're too lazy to get off your ass and discredit or disprove it. And so you're just going to do the monkey poop rebellion phase, right? I reject this by scratching my ass, taking the poop, and throwing it at the canvas of thought in front of me. Uh, all you're um, revealing is uh, that um, you you may not be um, quite right for the adult table when it comes to intellectual discussion. So, yeah, I just, uh, uh, I mean, you, you may discount this group, but there's far more reasons to discount what you're saying uh, based upon your approach. 
This comes uh, from a video called The War on White Males, and G writes, War on white males? Seriously, the world caters to white males. Only racist imbeciles believe otherwise. Um, You know, if the world really catered to white males, it's hard to really understand how white males can be portrayed so negatively all the time, everywhere. Just look at white males in sitcoms. Uh, look at white males uh, in commercials and so on. Uh, it's just uh, terrible uh, how white males are portrayed. So the idea that, I mean, if, we, if white males, if we actually had all of this power, then and, and we were so uh, racist and, and sexist and so on, then why wouldn't we send women off to do all the dangerous work, right? I mean, 95% or so or 98% of workplace injuries are male. So why, if, if men have all these power, why aren't we sending uh, all these women uh, to go and do all this dangerous work? Why aren't they the ones uh, in mines and fixing hydro poles and cutting down trees and doing all the stuff that seems to shave significant numbers of fingers and limbs off of the bodies of men? Why don't we just have women go out and do these things? Oh, well, no, maybe not quite as much power as we think. Uh, in the 20th century, just looking at Europe, I mean, millions and millions and millions of white males were killed in wars. Why wouldn't we just send minorities? Why wouldn't we just send women to go and fight these wars? Because we're supposed to have all this power. Right. I mean, it, that that would be very helpful if white males are so predatory and uh, racist and powerful, then um, why don't white males band together and keep all non-white immigrants out of a particular country? I'm not saying that's a good thing to do. I'm just saying why if, if we're so racist and so powerful, then how is it that uh, whites are going to aim to be a minority within a couple of decades uh, in uh, North America or in America in particular? It doesn't really make much sense. So the world caters to white males? Hmm. I don't really think that you can find a lot of empirical evidence for that. And of course, if if white males have so much power, then why is it in America that Asians have a higher per capita income than whites? A significantly higher per capita income. I mean, if we're all so powerful, why don't we just take all the Asians' money and uh, Jabba the Hat style, uh, drag around Princess Leia the princess layer of traditional victimhood feminists uh, around by the by the chains and uh, you know lick their faces with their gross patriarchal tongues and so on. Well, um, the world seems to cater to Orientals <laughs> or to Asians, and um, by by statistics. So um, it's just one. And the fact that somebody would say uh, the world caters to white males, only racist imbeciles believe otherwise. So calling me a racist imbecile for having some empirical evidence and data that goes against the narrative of patri white male patriarchy, white male power, you know, saying that, that I'm a racist imbecile because I question whether there's a war, uh, whether, whether white males have all of this uh, power. I mean, that's pretty racist, right? It's funny, you know, it's funny because um, a lot of people who, who sort of criticize me for questioning the faith or the belief that the white males have this infinite power in society, they're not white and not male. And that's kind of interesting to me because when white males talk about minorities, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, have you ever been a minority? Have you ever walked? Have you, do you know the black experience? Do you know the experience of the, so you, you can't really speak for not your race and not your gender if you're a white male, but lots of people who aren't white males uh, tell tell me and tell lots of white males exactly what it's like to be a white male, how much patriarchy and power 
we have. Well, I don't, if I can't appropriate other people's voices, it seems a bit odd that those same people can then appropriate my voice and tell me what it's like to be me. Um, so I just think in general, we should listen to each other a little bit more and um, not jump to these uh, horribly racist conclusions and uh, be open to evidence, uh, especially when it contradicts cherished beliefs, because cherished beliefs are a form of bigotry to prejudice, which we should, obviously in a philosophy show, we should attempt to cast aside. Ah, marriage, post-sex at dawn. So West writes, Steph keeps missing the point that young men now look at the data and recognize that marriage is a bum deal for them. I wish that the caller had kept him on that topic a bit more. But I'm beginning to think that the think about the children rants when marriage and MGTOW, men going their own way, which is men are moving away from dating and uh, uh, particularly relationships where there could be government-driven legal entanglements, uh, think about the children rants when marriage and MGTOW come up as Steph's way of dancing around this clear and present social shift. Well, um, marriage is not a bum deal for men if it lasts. Uh, men live longer, uh, they report greater happiness, better health, greater life satisfaction, higher incomes, and so on. So marriage is steroids to the joyful heart of masculinity when it works out. Marriage, when it doesn't work out, is pretty tragic. Uh, and disastrous for men, uh, uh, economically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and so on. So marriage is a bum deal. Simply, it's just prejudice. You're just, you're just looking at the one side of things. Well, men who get divorced have a miserable time of it. Absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. And, uh, you know, skiers who ski into trees have a very bad time of it too, but skiing's a lot of fun. <laughs> so uh, saying that just marriage is bad, uh, it's also kind of sexist because it's basically saying that uh, there are so few decent women around that marriage is um, just impossible. You know, so w would you say, for instance, well, I would never hire a Chinaman because all Chinamen are lazy and 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 steal, uh, or you know, maybe there's like 0.001 percent of Chinamen who aren't lazy and don't steal, but really, what's the point? And it's the same thing. Like, I won't engage in marriage with a woman because the vast majority of women are X, Y, and Z. And, <laughs> I mean, this is, um, this is because men have, have lost, or rather it's been denied, men have lost the wisdom that is required to find a good woman. And therefore, men are going for looks. Uh, the hot, the pretty, the cute, the whatever, the sexually available, the slutty, the whatever, right? So men are going for ease of access plus looks. And these are terrible ways to find a wife. <laughs> and this used to be very well known, right? It's the uh, Marianne versus, uh, a ginger versus Marianne and the old Gilligan's thing, like the glamorous woman versus, of course, Marianne was very pretty. I was always drawn to the Mariannes, like I like um, the good women rather than flashy women. Uh, not that the two can't be co-joined, but in general, uh, if you think with your penis, you are feeding yourself into an endless estrogen cliff of self-sacrifice and exploitation. In general, not always. Power corrupts. Beauty is a kind of power. And um, it's not like, beauty is like being very, very wealthy. And you can be very hardworking if you, you, you grow up as a trustafarian, you got a huge, you got $10 million in the bank. By the time you're 18, yes, maybe you'll be very hardworking and maybe everybody will be your friend just because you're such a great person, but it's not necessarily the norm, right? If you grew up with a huge amount of money, 
then oftentimes, you know, some aimlessness and some parasitical, quote, friendships can be there. And for women, beauty is a great power. And that great power has only increased with the increased hypersexualization of our culture. So uh, men don't know how to choose good women, which is incredibly frustrating to good women, right? I mean, you know how men, um, uh, men in the MGTOW community will often complain that um, the women in their 20s, when they're at their most attractive, will go out with these terrible guys just because those guys are hot. And then in their 30s, they want to settle down with someone and they're willing to forego the physical attractiveness and so on. And they're just like, oh, come on, I'm a great guy. Maybe I'm not six foot four with a washboard ab, but I'm a great guy. You should not just go chasing after these these idiots. And um, <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get it. I mean, I remember when I was in my 30s, uh, I, 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 a guy I played squash with when I was in my 30s was very good looking and a completely empty, vacuous, mean and exploitive guy. And he once played to be uh, a tape. Now, this is back when you had like recording tapes for your answering machines. God, I'm old. Anyway, um, he played me this tape. So he got, he got, he got the flu. So he went out, he went out with a girl, brought it back to his place and forgot that there was another girl coming over to have sex with him. And so then the other girl came over and he suggested a threesome. And then the first girl was really offended and left. And the second girl stayed and had sex with him. And, and then he got a cold or he got, he got the flu and he just was in bed. And the girl who'd stormed out kept calling him back, calling him back, yelling at him, really angry. And then worried, like, I can't believe you, you suggested a threesome, you pig. I can't, I'm so offended. I'm so disgusted. And called back a couple of hours later, like, uh, well, I'm still angry, but I, I want you to call me back. You know, let's talk about this. And then, cause he was just basically half out of it. Uh, in, uh, on the couch, he didn't call her back. And then, you know, a couple of hours later, Hey, I'm, I'm really concerned, but can you call me back? Would you, can you please call me back? Please call me back. And then a couple of hours later, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got angry at you. I didn't mean to yell at you. Please call me back. I really care about you. Let's work this out. And it just got rid. And it's like, Oh my God, this guy is like soulless. <laughs> he's like an automaton of seed spraying. Uh, but these women were like, ah, cause he's, he was high status and arm candy and, and so on. Right. And uh, so I get it. I get it. It's frustrating to watch women go for hot women go for idiot guys. Not that they all do. And blah, blah, blah. these are just generalizations. But try and walk a mile in a good woman's shoes and just see how incredibly frustrating it is for good women who aren't necessarily as hot as the um, you know, the hot women. For good women to see guys constantly chasing after hot women who are crazy. I'm just saying. Think about it. It's not all complaints on the male side about female nature. There are a lot of valid complaints from the female side about male nature, which is stop chasing the hot crazy and come to the good woman. Uh, the movie star will lead you off a cliff. I will help you build a happy home. So um, I just really want to uh, point that out, that uh, these possibilities do exist. I'm living it, uh, although I find my wife physically lovely, but um, it is possible. But you have to uh, change what it is you're looking for if you want to find something better. So a person uh, whose first moniker is stoned uh, said to uh, a listener to the call in uh, the podcast or video called Saying No to Marriage, uh, Daniel, just go your own way. Avoid all the bullshit of raising kids and getting married. Live a life free without all the obligations. You will be far better off without having your resources sucked out from under you by some woman. Stefan should really be advising all these guys to go their own way. Well, 
Nobody has to have kids, of course. Not having kids is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. You're not initiating force against anyone. But uh, I've read a lot of Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, a um, fairly famed psychoanalyst. And he said something that I read in my 20s. This is me in my 20s. I went on vacation for two weeks with uh, all the books I'd wanted to read that year. <laughs> it was just great. And uh, Jung was saying, so your first half of life is around striving and creating and working hard and being ambitious. But you also have to prepare for the second half of your life, uh, which is to some degree about accepting where you are. You know, you get to sort of 40 or 50, and after that, you're not going to be a ballet dancer, you're not going to be a linebacker, you're not going to be a rock star, you're just, you know, there's just an acceptance of, of where things are. And one of the great challenges of youth is not being able to see over the hill to the other side of life. And when you're young, you get a lot of socializing from going to school, from going to work, from going to clubs, from going to restaurants, from dating. Uh, you just meet a lot of new people all the time. Uh, in, in the second half of your life, you know, when you're like 55, you're not going to a lot of clubs, right? And um, it's really hard to meet people, especially really good, high-quality people, because the good, high-quality people already have a circle of friends that are already married, and they don't necessarily want to invite someone that they don't really know that well into their circle. So the second half of life, you know, without marriage, without kids, can be a pretty bony, stony, and destitute affair. Um, lonely, and, and we, we're social animals, right? I mean, to, to be alone uh, is, is, is very painful, uh, and to be ostracized is extremely painful for a lot of people. And so it is important to try and work in the first half of your life to build relationships that will sustain you in the last half of your life. Uh, you know, in the last half of your life, you get sick, uh, you forget things, you um, are less physically attractive as time goes forward, especially if you buy high-def cameras to reveal all of your ancient Martian liver spots on your forehead. So you just need to build your relationships up in the first half of your life, invest and create those relationships and pour your heart and your soul and your love and your care, your concern, your support into those relationships. And then you reap the rewards really in the second half of your life. And I think that's really, a really an important thing. And when you're young, I mean, that all just seems like forever uh, and a day away. Uh, I get that. I get that. I remember when I was growing up thinking, wow, you know, the year 2000, I'll be 34. That just seems like forever away. And now uh, I'm almost 15 years past that. And the time marches on. And if you're lucky, it drags you by the hair with it. <laughs> so uh, just remember about the second half of your life. Plan for the second half of your life. And there is, of course... It's easier. You know, I, I haven't written really a long book since my daughter was born six years ago because I'm plowing time, energy, and effort into being a parent. And would it be easier sometimes? Sure. Yeah. My daughter woke up last night at uh, 1.30 in the morning and I had to sit with her and help her get back. I mean, yeah, you, you get tired. And um, so the, these are investments that you make, though, like saving your money for retirement that you make in order to have a happier and more fulfilled and better companioned life when you are older. Uh, the number of quality people you can have relationships with goes down over time. So when you're young 
uh, and have all the time in the world and you're at the peak of your physical attractiveness and so on. Yeah, I mean, you can meet, but those quality people, they get hoovered up by others and get into their own relationships and uh, just don't be that cat lady in her 60s. Don't don't be the um, the guy who goes to Starbucks because he needs to be around carbon-based life forms that exhale carbon dioxide. I mean, just don't be the person who uh, is lonely. Because, you know, if, if you haven't gotten married, you don't have to have kids. I mean, I think it's great to have kids. Kids are, like, in, uh, amazing and wonderful and fantastic and challenging and time-consuming. But, um, and of course, everyone who's alive has benefited from their parents' desire to have children. So saying, well, four billion years of evolution stops with me. The DNA ends here. My parents sacrificed for me. I can sacrifice for no one. Well, I don't know. Seems a little selfish. I'd mean, just be honest with you. I'm just, I'm just being frank with you. It's not immoral. It's not bad. It's not wrong. But if you like being alive, well, pay it forward. You know, bring life to someone else. I mean, you know, not not with electricity and 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 zombie juice, but. Uh, bring life to others. The, the degree to which you wish to enjoy your life is a degree to which other people would like to exist. The degree to which you would feel sad if you were about to die is the degree to which you are, by denying life, you're creating, uh, in a sense, a loss of happiness in the world. And uh, again, it's, it's not a moral issue. I'm not trying to guilt or pressure anyone into having kids. It's just that you like being alive. So why not bring that gift to other people? You know, it's sort of like... Um, if you're passing a joint, I've never smoked marijuana, but if, you, if you're passing a joint, you know, don't bogart it, man. <laughs> Pass it on down the line. Uh, Pass the duchy on the left-hand side, I believe, as the uh, ancient Gregorian chant goes. And uh, it's like life, you know, don't bogart that life. You know, pass it down, pay it forward. And uh, I think it will make things better for you. Uh, and it's hard to see when you're in your 20s or maybe even your early 30s, but if you haven't settled down and, and got some deep, meaningful relationships, and the romantic one is, is pretty key, and certainly co-parenting is even deeper, you know, you're going to live to 80 or 90. If you haven't got those things by your late 40s, early 50s, certainly for women, it's too late. you got another 40 years to go, man. you got 40 years to go. And most other people are paired off, and there's only so much screen time you can do before you just don't feel like getting out of bed anymore. Uh, just prepare for the second half of your life. We do that with nutrition, try not to gain weight. We do that with exercise to keep our bones strong. Just prepare a little bit for the second half of life. And I'm sorry to be a nag about it. I'm not trying to guilt or pressure. I'm just telling you the facts as I see them. This is a response to a video I made on 50 Shades of Grey, which we can link below. Um, Fleet said, remember boys and girls, it's perfectly okay to be a sexual predator as long as you have tons of money. It's easy to see why so many feminists love this book. Well, that is, um, you know, for those who don't know, Fifty Shades of Grey is about a woman's sexual subjugation to a um, sadistic um, sadomasochist fellow uh, who's incredibly rich and young and hot and powerful and this, that, and the other. Yes, there are significant proportions. I think it's two-thirds of women have rape or ravishment fantasies where the man overpowers them and uh, has sex with them. And that is uh, giving the man dominance and power is part of the dominant submissive aspect of uh, S&M. And 
This, of course, can happen in a reverse gender as well. I, but the reality is that it makes sense biologically. You know, like it or not, it makes sense biologically. The R versus K reproductive strategy is really hard to look at society without that lens and have it come into focus. So the R reproductive strategy, uh, which is um, fairly well established uh, and I think is the norm, is spray and pray. Sex with a lot of people and don't invest much, if anything, into your kids and just hope that they reach maturity and that's how you reproduce your genes. And that's highly appropriate to a situation of of war, of, of conflict, of scarcity, of disease, of famine, and so on. So um, uh, if, if there's a plague going on, then it just makes sense to have a lot of kids because a lot of the kids are going to die, but this way you get... Whereas if you just have one or two kids, plague's probably going to get them, so you know, you're just not going to reproduce. So in times of social conflict and war and shortage and famine and, and so on, then the R reproductive strategy makes sense. The K reproductive strategy is have fewer kids, but invest more into them. Uh, and that's uh, a different kind of strategy. Now, our society has been moving from the K reproductive strategy, which is fewer kids and more investment into the kids, into the R reproductive strategy. This has really been the effect of the welfare state. And I won't go into all the reasons for that now, but um, I just want to make that sort of correlation. And so a book which would be unfathomable uh, in the 1950s as a sort of popular, uh, there's 100 million downloads or, or readings or whatever, uh, it, it makes perfect sense now. And the degree to which women uh, have rape fantasies or ravishment fantasies is the degree to which they're biologically programmed to go through the R strategy, right? To go through the uh, short ter uh, short term investment, a uh, little low investment, and lots of kids strategy. Uh, this, of course, has a lot to do with growing up without a father. If you grow up without a father, then your body, as a as a woman, uh, as a girl, your body is then programmed for an R reproductive strategy. You know, that's just part of the way that the body evolves in the moment, not intergenerationally, but based upon environmental cues. This is why girls without fathers um, uh, experience um, higher rates of promiscuity and also uh, achieve menses or menstruation earlier uh, and uh, so on. Because if there's no father around, we assume that we are in a, the body assumes we're in a time of conflict or war and you simply can't expect for a male provider to be around and therefore you need to get a lot of men interested in you. The hypersexuality of all of this has gone on. So Anyway, it's a long, complicated topic, but um, it makes sense that this is where female sexuality is. And, of course, there have been problems for male sexuality as well, but this uh, book is, really seems to be appealing to, to women. Uh, so I think this is why uh, this, is, uh, this is happening. So in a video I did on the fall of Greece, Haunted wrote, You are so arrogant, so sure about your economical dogma. Actually, economic dogma. Economical dogma would be the tiny dog. Well, guess what? It failed. Neoliberalism is a dead horse, and people in Europe are starting to recognize that, whether you like it or not. Greece once shined the path to humanity. We will do it again. It's time to be proud for ourselves once again. Well, this is a common misconception, uh, and it, 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 it's understandable. It really is understandable. But it's a common misconception that somehow what we have in the world today has something to do with the free market. And because people are buying and selling stuff, because there are banks, uh, because um, there are financial instruments, people say, aha, buying and selling stuff and having money and having financial instruments, that's capitalism. 
That's not capitalism. That's not the free market. There's really only one fundamental thing you need to ask about a system to figure out whether it's a free market or not, which is, is there a free market in money? Money is, is really the foundation of the free market. If there's a free market in money, in other words, if there are competing currencies, if people can introduce currencies without being jailed for counterfeiting and so on, then you have a free market. If control of currency is in a multitude of private hands, then you have a free market. If it's not, then you don't. You have fascism with a minor in trade. <laughs> Major in fascism, minor in trade. And uh, this is really important. And the European Central Bank is not a free market institution. The uh, financial instruments being bought and sold are in general not financial institutions. The amount of money that's being forced into the stock market through tax policies has nothing to do with the free market. So I do get and understand that it's very tempting to look at this and say, freedom has failed. But that's exactly, it's exactly what the banksters, our lords and masters want you to think. Because then they can, the, the governments can rush in with more power and say, we'll save you from freedom because that's freedom, right? And it's like, that's not freedom. It's not freedom. And um, the idea that it is is very convenient to those who wish to extend and expand their power over you. How to become a legend, Nick wrote, I always make it a habit to listen or watch something, listen to or watch something inspiring before I go to bed so I have epic dreams and I wake up with a hard-on to do something amazing with the day. Thanks for the inspiration boner, Stefan. Well, you're welcome. That's why um, we like to categorize this show, at least those aspects of the show, as oral sex. A video that I did, um, conversation, Friedrich Nietzsche, was he a philosopher? Steve wrote, it is disgusting that Stefan didn't explain the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy, which would have easily answered his question. Stefan doesn't really know that much about philosophy, though, so he doesn't know what first-year philosophy students learn. <laughs> well, I mean, analytic and continental philosophy, interesting stuff. And um, we can do a conversation. We can have a conversation about that at one point. I think that they're interesting distinctions. But don't know that much about philosophy. Well, to me, and I think it's pretty reasonable to say this, philosophy is the act of thinking for yourself according to universal principles. That is philosophy. Philosophy is not reading about other people who have thought according to some principles. It's sort of like saying being a musician is playing your instrument. Watching other people play their instruments does not make you a musician. And the idea that I don't know much about philosophy, I mean, my graduate degree was um, on the, uh, was taking a major thesis on the history of philosophy and taking major philosophers uh, and running them through a particular thesis, which is that those who believe in higher realms almost always end up uh, advocating dictatorship as their ideal political model, whereas those who believe in uh, sense data and no heaven, no new middle realm, no higher realms, no platonic realm of forms, end up with a limited democracy, uh, particularly a republic, as their ideal form of government. Uh, it was pretty. Uh, it was a pretty big thesis that took a long time to write, and I did get an A, which you know doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that you know try being <laughs> at that time an objectivist and getting through the socialist hell of Canadian graduate school, and uh, it was not the easiest thing I've ever done. Anyway, so I do know quite a bit about philosophy and the history of philosophy, but I don't see how that helps people live better lives in the present. So that's, I mean, that's why when they do these call-in shows, if Steve, if you want to 
call in and talk about the distinction between uh, analytic and continental philosophy, I think that would be fantastic. I'd love to do it. I guarantee you that very few people will listen to it, uh, and it really won't change anyone's life for the better. And I've really dedicated and committed myself and my intellectual energies and capacities to making people's lives actually better in a tangible way, which I think is kind of a bridge between analytic or nitpicky logic-based philosophy and continental philosophy, which is more socially and historically and politically engaged philosophy. I like to think I've sort of bridged those gaps to go from first principles to actually changing your life. is kind of a merger between these two approaches. So I don't really think that philosophy is studying other philosophers. doesn't hurt. can certainly help. It's not like it's the opposite. Uh, you know, you may want to study another violinist technique in order to improve your own violin playing, but you study other people's violin technique in order to improve your own violin playing. And being a musician may include studying other people, but the purpose is to actually play better yourself. So you are, if all you do is study other people's guitar techniques or whatever techniques, if all you do is study other people's, you don't, you're not actually a musician. Now, the question is, of course, when it comes to our finite resources and time in this world and in this life, how do we spend it? What, what, what do we do with our precious short time? You know, we are fuses going to the detonation of blank non-existence. Gone. Not even the word gone is there because the brain that can conceive of it is gone too. And so what are we going to do? And just ask yourself, would you like Mozart to have spent more time studying the history of music or more time composing music? I think if you love music, as I do, you're pretty happy that Mozart didn't spend a whole lot of time studying the history of various musical movements, but instead sat down and wrote his music. So I could spend more time, and I've, we've talked about it a lot uh, in this Free Domain Radio team, history of philosophy, I'd love to do it. <laughs> I'd love to do it. I think it's fascinating. I've got some experience in it, and um, certainly it would be a lot of fun for me to do. Would it make the world a better place? It seems unlikely. Uh, and I don't get a lot of, my, my big feedback mechanism is obviously emails, comments, but the people who call into the show, what kind of questions do they have? And the kind of questions they have are around uh, personal life events or choices that will really affect their capacity for happiness and virtue. So that's what I focus on. History of philosophy would be great fun, great intellectual wankery for me. I love that kind of stuff. But uh, I am, of course, trying to serve the world and the future by bringing as much practical, tangible, actionable philosophy to people as possible. If you like Van Gogh, sorry, dated a Dutch girl once, uh, and was told it's not Van Gogh, it's Van Apparently, he was named uh, by Darth Vader, who, eh, chokehold. But um, Van Gogh's uh, paintings, would you rather, he said, well, I'm not going to paint self-portraits, I'm not going to paint this kind of stuff, I'm not going to paint Starry Night. What I'm going to do is I'm going to study uh, how pointillism developed in Poland in the 17th century. I think we're all pretty happy that he put brush to canvas and created these things. Uh, uh, you like Bohemian Rhapsody? Would you rather that Freddie Mercury had, instead of writing it and recording it uh, with Queen, that he had, um, I don't know, uh, studied um, the origins of gypsy music in Romania? Um, I, I think we're actually happy when people create rather than study the creations of others. So, Steve, I mean, I understand that, and I, I sort of have two minds about this. So I guess I'll just do two minds about this. Uh, number one is the sympathy one. Uh, you, you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed because you think if there's a gap in someone's knowledge about history, they have nothing valid to contribute to a discipline. 
Uh, and what that does is it points everyone back in the past and it castrates them from their intellectual fecundity, from their intellectual virility. You know, it, it is passion, excitement, curiosity, and reason that drive one's pursuit of wisdom. And uh, if it's like, well, I can't say anything about philosophy unless I have really done a PhD thesis on the differences between analytic and continental philosophy, what you're basically saying is go back to the library, stop changing things, stop improving the world, because you just don't know enough about what other people think in order to have your own thoughts. Hey, the more time I invest in learning how other people think, the less time I'm learning how to think myself. Compare and contrast into oblivion. So... No, I, I don't think it's valid. Uh, and I, I sympathize with that, right? So part of me says, you know, well, this is what you've been taught and this is how you've been castrated and this is how you were told to be ineffectual in your life and I really sympathize with this. Part of me feels that and part of me always feels, well, you're just kind of a dick. <laughs> I mean, you're just kind of a dick because what you're doing is you're sowing sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt uh, by saying, well, I, Steph doesn't even know what first-year philosophy students learn. Uh, you're not actually making any arguments, you're not showing your knowledge of these things, you're just showing you know a couple of words, and you're trying to downgrade and put down other people, because you're kind of a dick. So I don't know if I feel sympathy for what you've been taught that's made you, <laughs> frankly, castrated and ineffectual, or I don't know if you're just a dick, who knows. But um, uh, that is the reality that I am going to go and bring philosophy to the world as best I can, and the idea that I'm going to sort of turn around and slide back into the inconsequentialities of looking at other people's uh, thoughts uh, is um, also it's to say that other people's thoughts are necessarily better than mine. What the hell do I have to add to what Hegel wrote? Uh, and of course, that could never end because Hegel wrote a hell of a lot. And you could also read him in the original German. I mean, you, you could look at his influence. You could spend your whole life studying Hegel. But uh, that's not what Hegel did. This is so funny that we study people and then we don't do what they did. Um, Hegel did not study Hegel. I mean, of course, he studied philosophy just as uh, Nietzsche did uh, philology, I guess, as it was called back then. But uh, Socrates did not spend his whole life studying the pre-Socratics. He was out there thinking for himself. So saying, Steph, you should go and study people who spent their time doing philosophy rather than studying other people's philosophy. So you should go and study other people's philosophy rather than doing your own philosophical work. And you should study the people who didn't study the other people's philosophy but did their own philosophical work is obviously so contradictory that to point it out is to show the naked absurdity of the position. So anyway, keep your comments coming. As always, I really do enjoy having them cherry-picked uh, by uh, the, the person at Freedom Main Radio who faces the tsunami of prejudice and ignorance and occasional uh, wit and insight uh, that uh, comes in from the Internet. Um, so please keep your questions and comments coming. Thank you so much for listening. Please help support the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. I will talk to you soon, my brothers and sisters. <laughs>